So Jerry asked me if I would talk to you guys about eschatology, about end times, the last things. How's the world going to end? So we're going to do that. But I'll just tell you right now, I think you guys do this every week, right? That number, if you text questions to that number, we'll talk about whatever you want to. Um, the kind of the way I've designed this thing tonight is I want to give you things that are kind of like above the fray. When we, when we talk about end times or eschatology, this is uh, the, easily the most controversial aspect of Christianity. And I think it's the area that we probably should come to with the greatest amount of humility. Because the truth is, the Bible speaks, it says a lot about how this chapter is going to end and how the next chapter is going to begin. But it does so in maddeningly incomplete ways. And sometimes the data is contradictory. Sometimes there's gaps in the data. And so anybody who tries to come up with a systematic picture of this is what's going to happen, and here's the timeline, and here's what it's going to look like, it's a, it's a pretty fraught exercise. There's a lot of stuff that we could get wrong. So what I, what, I'm, what I want to do tonight is give you four headlines, four things that are not wrong, okay? These basic building blocks, these are true, these are dependable. I think they're inarguable from Scripture. You can bank on these. But there's a ton of details that, that kind of fill in between. And all of those details, I've got all kinds of thoughts. I've spent a ton of time thinking about this, reading about this. And when we get into the particulars, the details, I might be right about the things that I think about, some of those particular details. And I also might be wrong, but I've probably thought about them. And so if you've got questions about these four main pillars, um, we'll talk about those and I'll try to persuade you because I really don't, I think these are all super dependable, reliable claims that I'm going to make. But then the gaps in between, like maybe, I think, this is what I, this is, I'm not even sure about this one, and we'll process that. So whatever your questions are about the big things or the gaps in between, or maybe you've heard something growing up that actually seems contradictory to the claims, these four main ideas that I'm going to drop on you. You can challenge me on that. That's, that's great. I love it when people disagree with me, and we can process that. We'll do so. We'll be kind to one another, and we can kind of be like, well, what about this, or how does this text make sense? So anything you want to, just text it in, and then we'll take a few minutes at the end to, to process through it, okay? But I do, I do encourage you, I think, seeking to understand what has God said about the way this world is going to come to an end, and how is God going to usher in the next world, I think it's worth knowing. Even though there's ambiguity, even though there are gaps in our knowledge, this is really worth leaning in and, and seeking to understand. Just do it with a giant measure of humility that none of us are omniscient beings. We want to do the best that we can to make sense of all that God has said with kindness and respect to those that might see something that we haven't discovered yet. Cool? Make sense? Here's your four things. I think these are dependable. We'll unpack them. Number one thing, the Great Commission will be fulfilled, and then Jesus will come back, okay? Number one thing, the Great Commission is going to be fulfilled, and then number two, Jesus will physically, visibly, unmistakably, obviously, gloriously return to the earth. The Great Commission will be fulfilled, number one. Number two, Jesus is coming back. Number three, when He comes back, every human being who has ever lived will be raised from the dead. Everybody. It's going to be a giant resurrection of every man, woman, and child who's ever lived. It's going to come back. And then number four, this is the final thing, is when that happens, when the resurrection happens, there will be massively divergent outcomes for those who are in Christ and those who are not. Okay? If you want to build for yourself like a theology of the end times, how do, what do we really know? Those, I, I suggest those four things are the things you want to hang your hooks on. Number one, the Great, Jesus, the great Commission is going to be fulfilled. What, and what that means is the gospel is going to everybody. Number two, when it happens, Jesus is coming back. Number three, when he comes back, 
everybody's going to be raised from the dead. And number four, the outcomes when he does come back and raise everybody from the dead could not be more starkly different. That is a robust set, okay? And again, if any of those things you disagree with, we'll talk about that, but then we'll try to fill in some details too if you want to. All right? Make sense? Let's talk about the first one. Uh, the Great Commission will be fulfilled before Jesus comes back. The Great Commission is just the name. A co-mission is a directive, is a mission, an assignment. And the Great Commission is what we call Jesus' declaration to his disciples of what he wanted them to do. So you've got to picture the scene. So Jesus has just risen from the dead. He's taught these guys for three years. He's healed people. He's done all these miracles. Much to their shock and horror, he ends up dying. They didn't see it coming. He had said it several times, but they just couldn't. It didn't make sense to them. They couldn't make it fit. But then he does die, and they're horrified and they're shocked. And then, to the amazement of everybody, he raises from the dead. And after he does, he comes back to them. And he says, all right, here it is. He makes this claim. He says, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. Do you guys know, where, where does it, what am I quoting from? Do you know where this is? Do you have this memorized at all? Do you know? Anybody know the reference here? Grace, you know it. You better know it. Or you're going to lose your job. <laughs> what is it, Grace? Matthew 28, 18 to 20. If you guys want to turn there in your Bibles or jot that down, Matthew 28, 18 to 20, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. By the way, that's new news. He had not always had all authority, which is so strange. Like, well, isn't he God? He is God. But in a peculiar way, by the means of his death, he was, he was raised from the dead and given sovereignty over the cosmos. All authority in heaven and earth has just been given to me. He's been made king. Philippians 2 makes this clear, that he took the lowest place, right? He humbled himself, became obedient to death, even death on a cross, and therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that's above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow. This is new news. He has become a king and ruler and cosmos and lord over all things, and he can have anything he wants. And what he wants is this, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples. He's the king of everything. He wants one thing, and that is this message of his new kingdom to be spread to the entire earth. He says, well, I want you, I want you to go out, and I want you to tell people about me. I want you to tell them they can leave the old domain of darkness and come into this new kingdom of light. We'll forgive everything they've ever done. We'll make everything new. I want you to go. I want you to do it, and I'll be with you always, even to the very end of the age. And that statement there, even to the end of the age, is a hint. It's a subtle hint, but it's a hint that when this happens, once we finish the game and the gospel has gone to absolutely everyone, everywhere, every tribe, every tongue, every people, every na- everywhere we go, that's the end of the game. And if that hint is a little bit too subtle for you, he makes it even more explicit in Matthew 24, 14. Jesus says, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So if you are eager or hopeful or desirous that Jesus would come back and like finish this thing and make everything be the way it was always meant to be, the number one thing, in fact, I would say the only thing that is the guaranteed way to hurry up, to hasten, to bring about Jesus' return is the proclamation of the gospel to everyone. You might pray that God make your name ring out in Saudi Arabia you might give money to people. If you, maybe you've got friends that are going to graduate from here, and they're going to go serve Jesus in the, what we call the 1040 window, this part of the world, 10 degrees north latitude to 40 degrees north latitude. It's this kind of North Africa in the Middle East, essentially, Southeast Asia, South, Southern Asia. This is the part of the world where the Great Commission really is the least fulfilled. Once the job is done, 
And your generation literally could be the ones who do it. Once that's done, once this gospel of the kingdom is preached to the whole world as a testimony to all nations, then the end will come. If you want Jesus to come back, the best thing you can do is you can pray, you can go, you can give, you can send people to finish the job. Once that happens, here's what happens next. He comes back, okay? Now, we can talk about this. The Bible talks about this all over the place, but he's going to physically. It's not metaphorical. It's not in our hearts. He's coming physically, visibly, obviously, gloriously. He's coming to the earth, and the Bible talks about this over and over again. I'll I'll give you one. Well, we'll look at a couple, but go to Titus chapter 2. Titus is this kind of like forgotten little book, but I love it. It's full of great insight. Titus 2.11, Paul says this. He says, the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Grace, it's grace that teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. While we wait for this, check this out. While we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You guys, sometimes Christians act like, because I think they've been taught that, the big thing that we long for, the great news, the happiness at the end of the game, is that when you die, you go to heaven, right? Lots and lots of people think that the message of Christianity is if you believe in Jesus, then when you die, you go to heaven, as if that's the good stuff, but it's not. Our hope is not that when we die, we go to heaven. Our hope is that Jesus is coming back right? This is the thing. This is the blessed hope. It's the glorious appearing of our great, great God and Savior. The Bible talks about this over and over and over again. Matthew 24 is all about his return, that he's coming back. Acts 1 talks about his return, that he's coming back. 1 Thessalonians 4 is a great text. It kind of unpacks in a little more detail. It's so interesting because in Thessalonica, they were nervous. They thought, they knew he was coming back, but they thought he was coming back like, I don't know, like today, like right now, immediately. And then they started to die, And as the Christians were dying, people were like, well, wait a minute. What happens if Jesus comes back after somebody dies? It's so inverted from the way we think about it. And Paul really unpacks and explains it. No, 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 because he's coming back. And when he comes back, he's going to bring with him all those who have, quote, fallen asleep in him. He's not coming back. He's coming back, but he's going to bring with him all the Christians that have died. And there'll be this extraordinary reunion. In fact, 1 Thess every chapter. Look, go through 1 Thessalonians. The last two or three verses of every single chapter of 1 Thessalonians are about the return of Christ. It is the thing that animates the book. Second Thess, same thing. It's all about his return. Romans 8 is a fantastic passage about his return. It is the thing for which we hope and long. So number one, if you're going to build your eschatology, Jesus' great commission is going to be fulfilled. The gospel is going everywhere, and it might go everywhere with you. Because in fact, the gospel came to you on the way to someplace else. And maybe that someplace else is Yemen. Maybe that someplace else is Botswana. Maybe that someplace else is Harrisonburg. But the gospel came to you on the way to somebody else. And when we finish the job, Jesus is going to come back. And it'll be unmistakable for everyone to see this is the thing that we long for. Okay, what's number three? Great commission fulfilled. Jesus comes back. What's number three? Everybody gets raised. Okay, now check it out. Go to 1 Corinthians 15. I don't know if you guys know this. This is so interesting. 1 Corinthians 15, 20. It says this, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. 
For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own turn, Christ the first fruits, and then when he comes, those who belong to him. Okay, Paul, twice he uses this weird phrase. He calls Jesus the first fruits. Does anybody know what that means? That Jesus is the quote, first fruits? Is that meaningful to you guys? Okay, so there are, okay, there are, there's all kinds of feasts in the Old Testament. Yes, he's not, he's not referring to a particular um, Old Testament phenomena. He's referring to a normal thing that would happen in an agrarian culture, which is weird because we're not really, we're not so much in that. And all that it means is that Jesus is the sample. So if I'm selling, if I want to sell my wheat off my like, you know, 500 acre farm, I'm going to just get a bushel of wheat. I'm just going to get a chunk, a piece of wheat, and we're going to negotiate the price. Do you like this wheat? Okay, that'll be 50 bucks or something. And the assumption is that what's true of the sample will be true of the whole thing. And the, the closest parallel I can think of in our culture is when you go to an ice cream store, okay? You ever get a sample of ice cream, right? And the assumption is that if that first little ridiculous small spoonful is delicious, then the whole scoop's going to be delicious, right? That's the first fruits. That's the sample of it all. Jesus is the sample. And if, if what Paul is saying is if Jesus rose from the dead, then you're going to raise from the dead. He's the same. What's true of him will be true of us, okay? And you guys, what, what this means is that it's, we, we kind of make a big deal out of Jesus' resurrection, and, you know, and that's reasonably so. But the amazing thing about Jesus is not that he rose from the dead. It's when he rose from the dead. Everybody, literally every human being who's ever lived is going to rise from the dead. Jesus just went early right? And when Paul is saying he's the sample, he's specifically talking about of Christians, that everyone who's in Christ is going to be raised. But the Bible makes it clear numerous, numerous times it's not just Christians that are going to be raised from the dead. It's everyone. Listen to what Paul says here. Here's Acts 24. He says in verse 15, I have the same hope in God as these men, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. When he says that, he's just referring to what, quoting Jesus, essentially. In John 5, 28, Jesus said, Don't be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out, and those who have done good will rise to live, and those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. The Old Testament says the same thing. Daniel chapter 12 says that multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake some to everlasting life and others to shame and everlasting contempt. You guys, every man, woman, and child who's ever lived is going to be raised from the dead. And do you know what happens when they are? When Jesus comes back so that we fulfill the Great Commission, and then Jesus comes back, and then every grave opens. Everyone across the centuries who's lived is raised from the dead. What, because what happens next? Do you know? It will be an extraordinary time where every single person will be examined. Every life will be laid bare. These things that have been whispered in the, in the in secrets will be shouted from the rooftops. Every life will be evaluated, which should, should, strike you as just dread terror. Can you imagine, can you imagine if as a surprise, I had a team that was following you around this week with a camera 
and we're about to watch the highlight reel of just the last seven days. Is there anybody that would volunteer to have that done? Like, would, okay, the day is coming when everything we've made clear. And when this happens, you guys, and our lives are evaluated, the outcomes will be so massively divergent. Because some of us who have our lives put on display and evaluated will also have an advocate. We, some, some will have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. Not to say, oh, I wasn't so bad, but rather to say all of the badness, all of the, all of the embarrassingness of that, I'll take it on myself. That what Jesus is going to do for those that are in him, when everybody is raised and everybody is evaluated, Jesus is going to stand in the way for a whole mess of people and say all of the shady stuff that they did, all, all of these things, I take the blame, put it on my tab. And he will give credit for his perfect life to those. And everybody else will stand with their life naked and on display. And they will have to own every careless word and every thoughtless deed. I tell you, this is, this is going to happen. And you do not want to be among those who have to stand and speak for your own life. I, there are too many things in my own life that would just be humiliating and inexcusable. I need somebody who's going to speak to the Father in my defense. And the outcomes of these two possibilities are so ragingly divergent. For those that are in Christ, they will be raised to live forever right here on this planet. God loves this world. Sometimes we have this escapism, like we're going to die, we're going to go to heaven and be someplace else. But the Bible knows nothing of escapism. Right here, this world is going to be remade. And for those that are in Him, they'll be given the ability to live forever, for a million years, for a billion years, for a trillion years and more, an endless and increasing happiness. It will be the fulfillment of our deepest longings to live in endless joy received as a gift in a world without sin or death that's filled with, I think, creative and meaningful work. God loves work. There'll be things to do and discoveries to make and art to create. There'll be relationships. There'll be love and requited love. What do you want? Is there anything in the world that you want more than the people that you love most of all to love you back? That's what this is going to be like. There'll be intimacy and joy and meaning, and it's going to be absolutely exceptional. But remember, the outcomes are massively divergent. Some are given eternal life, endless happiness. But those that don't know Him, that have not come under a saving grace, who are left to have their lives examined without an advocate, without anyone to speak to the Father in their defense, they will face a dreadful, it's all true, a fearsome destiny that's described like this in the Bible. It's described as destruction, and lostness, as a loss of life, as blackest darkness, as eternal punishment, as eternal fire, perishing, death, wrath. It's a raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. As condemnation, he says it will be like being crushed by a stone 
burned to ashes, condemned to extinction, burned up like chaff, disinherited, cut off, overthrown. The outcomes could not be any more divergent. And you guys, it is this massive gap between the absolute loss of everything and the invitation into unfathomable glory by unimaginable grace. That gap right there, the fact that some of us, all of us, deserve this, but are going to get that, that thing, that gap, that's what promotes, prompts, produces worship and love and joy and gratitude. It's so great a salvation. I think that's the thing that fills us with compassion because we remember what it's like to have been those that are facing so dreadful a future. It fills us with dynamic energy to sacrifice whatever we have to sacrifice so that the people that are perishing might come under His protection, right? There is this fantasy in our culture that all roads lead to the same end, and it's ludicrous. It's not true. The road has a fork in it. Jesus says one path leads to destruction and another path leads to life. These paths diverge. And everything, everything, everything hangs in the balance. Not just for you, but for everyone that you come in contact with. C.S. Lewis says it like this. He says, it's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, all day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. It's in light of these overwhelming possibilities. It's with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all relationships, all loves, all plays, all politics. There are no ordinary people, and the outcomes will be massively divergent. Okay, four things. Number one, the Great Commission will be fulfilled. This message of His love and His grace will go absolutely everywhere in the world. And I wonder, will you be among those who hasten the day, whose speed it's coming, who use the considerable time, talents, and treasures that have been entrusted to you? Will you spend them just on yourself? Or you spend them to see this message, take it to every campus, every career, every corner of the world. Be amazing the impact that your life could have and ringing into eternity. Number two, when we're done, and it could be before you die, Jesus comes back. He's going to come back. And I wonder, is that where your hope is fixed? Do you wake up? Do you think about this? Do you wonder how soon? What will it be like? How will it be? This is the hope. This for centuries, this is the thing that Christians have longed for. It's not the escapism of dying and going to heaven. It's that Jesus is coming here. He's coming. He's coming. He could come soon. That's what we long for. One of my favorite books is called The Robe. Has anybody read it by any chance? The Robe. Anybody read this? You guys, somebody should read this book. Okay. Write this down, The Robe, Lloyd C. Douglas. It's a fictional story, but it's about the group, about a, really about a particular man who led Jesus' crucifixion. It's a novel, fiction. Um, he's the guy who leads Jesus' crucifixion. He recognizes he did something horrible, 
But it's like, what are you going to do? And he goes into this, falls into this deep depression. He ends up meeting the Christians and eventually learns that they think, this is crazy, but they think that he's back alive, which he knows is absurd because he killed him. I was there. He's dead. But he begins, becomes ultimately convinced that these guys have seen him alive. And the peculiar thing about these guys is whenever they get to the crest of a hill, they always pause and they look down the lane and they look down the lane and they continue to walk. And at first he's like, what are, you, what are these people doing? But what, what he learns is that everywhere they go, they're like, he could be coming. He could be coming. He could be just around the next bend. I wonder, is that how you live? Is the thing that you long for his coming? It's meant to be the anchor of our lives. Number three, we'll be raised from the dead. We will be examined. Our lives we put on display. Are you mindful of this? That this life is a moment 60 years, 70 years, 80 years. But you will be raised to live forever if you are in Him. And you do not want to go through that examination alone because the results will be extreme. Endless gain or total loss. Okay? If you build up your theology of the end times, of last things, you're going to need more than just those four things, but those are the four pillars. You build it on this and you're going to go okay, right? We can fill in some details. And again, I'd be happy to take some I don't know if we have any questions or none or what, but we can talk about that how maybe things that you've heard fit into that paradigm or don't, or questions about the particulars or the details. But I, I really encourage you, God has said an awful lot about this, and you can wring it out. His word is reliable, it's dependable, and it rewards diligent study. It kind of requires diligent study to piece all these things together, all these things that he said. But it is worth taking those four things, memorize them, know them, prove them from Scripture, and then build on them and fill in the details as you go. Okay? All right. You got some questions? A lot of questions. Okay. Then I'll um, stop talking. They keep rolling in while I'm sitting here in the past two seconds. Okay. Um, okay. Remind so, me of your name. Audrey. Audrey. Yes. Good. Good to see Audrey. Nice to meet you. Yeah. Um, you all right. So first question. Um, so if I die now, do I have to wait for the second coming of Christ to be judged, or do I get judged upon my death and then again when Christ returns? Okay. Great question. Okay. So um, if you were to die tonight, and we hope that you don't, that would be sad for everybody, right? Here's, I think, what's going to happen. Number one, um, you're going you're gonna to go to be with Jesus immediately. Paul says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, right? He also says, I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. He says to the thief on the cross, um, today you'll be with me in paradise. So I think we have very good reason to believe, from, based on those three things, a couple other passages, um, the fact that Jesus is going to bring those who have fallen asleep with him suggests that they are with him, right? So there will be an immediate, we will, there will be a consciousness and immediateness in his presence. And that's not a bad thing. I don't mean to like downstream that so much that we're like, who cares about that? That's a good thing. But it's disembodied. It's not what we were made for, okay? Um, so I don't think the judgment, I don't think there's going to be a judgment at that moment. It seems like all the biblical texts about the judgment are all anchored around his return and our resurrection. So there will be some moment here um, that, that we're with him prior to that, but not in a way that is ultimately satisfying. In Revelation, there's this interesting moment where the, um, the souls of those that have died in, in some great suffering are longing for the return of Christ. They were, they're with him, and they're longing for his return and the redemption of their bodies. So there's, some, there's something good about that. But there's something ultimately unsatisfying that we long for this. We were made for this world. We're made to be to live as embodied creatures in a world that He's redeemed. Cool. Gotcha. Thank you. Okay. All right. Um, when He says that when the gospel is preached to all nations, 
and that it will ring into the end times, does he mean all nations or to every single person on earth? Okay, yeah. So, good question. So, um, usually, we, we, the, the, if you want to get all technical and dorky about it, we, we, we call it ethnos. It's people groups, okay? So, it seems that what will happen is that the gospel message will spread to the entire world, to all peoples and cultures, but not to every individual, as evidenced by the fact that there's plenty of people who have already died and never heard the gospel. So not every person ever necessarily hears. There's a, there's a great uh, pastor like 100 years ago, 150 years ago, named A.T. Pearson, and he said that Christians, need, you need to think about this, right? That your children, however faithful they are in their time, let's just say that it's your kids that are going to fulfill the Great Commission, right? They're going to take the gospel to India. They're going to take the gospel to China. They're going to take the gospel through the ten four. They're going to go to all the places that my generation didn't go and your generation didn't go. He says, listen, all they're going to do is tread the graves of those who have perished through our neglect. The generation now, today, is our stewardship. That no matter what the next generation, let's say it's another generation or a generation after them or a generation after them, and we finally get this thing done in like 2156, everybody that's lived in the intervening, you know, 150 years, they're lost, right? So the promise is that the gospel will go everywhere, but there are people that are going to die before they ever hear the offer of grace. Now, it's just for God to punish them for their sin. Nobody goes, nobody's punished because they're not a Christian. I'm not, the, my, the problem in my life before I became a Christian, we don't, we don't say like, well, it's because you weren't a Christian that you're lost. No, the problem was that I was doing terrible stuff, right? And my life was bent around me. And people today that don't know Jesus, the thing they stand before Him for is not their non-Christianity, it's the reality of their sin, right? And yet, I got something that I didn't deserve. You got something that you didn't deserve. And so we take the gospel to people, not because they deserve to hear it, but because they need it and because we didn't deserve it either, right? So the promise is the, the, the job will be finished, but the question is when and by whom, and will we rise up and really get the job done? Maybe it could happen. We have the technology. We have the money. My goodness, there's never been more money in the hands of Christians than any time in the history of the world. We have the ability to count our lives as insignificant against the glory of His name going to every, every tribe, every people. Yeah. Um, this next question kind of relates to that, but how do we know that we are called to share the gospel and not just the disciples or the crowd that he was speaking to in Matthew? Okay, so that would be fun to unpack at much greater length, but I will say unequivocally, the gospel came to you on the way to somebody else over and over and over again. Let's see, um, of all the places we can do, grab this. We'll, do this, we'll unpack this one because this is worth knowing. Go to um, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We'll just do this very quickly, okay? 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And we'll try to, um, uh, we'll, we'll try to do a, a high-level version of this. Okay, go to verse, mm, let's start at verse 17, okay? And I wish I had a whiteboard. I'd draw this up for you, but listen to this, okay? 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. Um, okay, there we go. Asking you shall receive, okay? Can you still see? All right, so l- listen to this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Ah, The old is gone, the new has come. All this is from God, check it out, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Did you hear the two things right there? Okay, all this is from God. Um, Do we still need this number? Are we all done? Can I blow it up? 
What is this? Good Lord. Okay, so check it out. So here, God is going to do something right here, okay? All this from God who, check it out, reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. He does two things. Number one, he reconciles us and he gives us the ministry of reconciliation. Two things, okay? Now watch this. He's about to do, do you guys see a colon at the end of verse 18? All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, colon. Got that? That colon means, let me explain. Here it is. What, what is the minute? We get, we get that he reconciled us, right? That we're no longer estranged from him. The enmity has ended and we're with him, right? Number two, he gave us the, quote, ministry of reconciliation. What does that mean, verse 19? Well, that means this, that God reconciles the world to himself and, not cutting man's sins against them, and commits the message of reconciliation. Now, it sounds like he's just repeating himself, but he's not. What he's explaining is the nature of the message of reconciliation is that the gospel comes to you and it goes to somebody else from you, okay? And then he says in verse 20, verse 20 uh, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors, okay? This is coming out of this again. We are his ambassadors as if God were making his appeal through us. We implore you, be reconciled, Okay? So what Paul, I just ruined that pen forever, what Paul is saying is that if you are reconciled, you necessarily are a reconciler. And then as a reconciler, your message to the next generation is, hey, you can be reconciled and be a reconciler. And then their message is, you can be reconciled and a reconciler. And their message is, you can be reconciled and a reconciler. You guys, there, it could be, and it may be, that it may be the case that in like, you know, whenever Jesus comes back and everything's all cleaned up and we have time for this, that we can ask the question, who led you to Christ? Who was the person who did it? Okay, who led them to Christ? Who led them to Christ? And you are all descendants down the line, maybe to Paul, maybe to John, maybe to Mary. Some of you might be like the great, 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 great grandson of Mary Magdalene because she talked about it, right? So it is always the case. The gospel is a two-gift box. If you are reconciled, you are necessarily a reconciler, okay? And we could, we could do this through multiple passages, but unequivocally, yes. The gospel always comes to us on the way to somebody else. You can, you can trace it through. Look at the last, just look at John 1 tonight, okay? What you'll see in John 1, what, what John is doing, he's normalizing right out of the gate. Somebody hears about Jesus, and immediately, Andrew. So, so John the Baptist tells Andrew, hey, yo, I met the Messiah. And he's like, really? Amazing. And his first thing is he goes and he tells Peter, Right? Nathaniel hears the gospel, and, or no, Philip hears the gospel, and first thing, he goes and he tells Nathaniel that the normal thing is that when somebody meets Jesus, they turn around and they tell somebody else. This has been going on for centuries, and not only did the gospel come to you on the way to somebody else, but the gospel is going to go to them that you're going to talk to on the way to yet still somebody else down through the centuries until we finish the job and Jesus comes back. Okay? Awesome. Know? Awesome. Thank you. All right. Um, I don't know how much, we don't really have any more time for questions, but... I do have a bunch. And don't worry, if your question was not answered, I'm going to send them over to Tim, and he'll contact you and so, get your questions answered. So let me, let, let's do it like this. So if you want my phone number, you have it on this card, right? Do you have this? Am I number on here? Should be. Yeah. My email and my phone number are on here. And so uh, if, if any of these things have intrigued you, I wish we had like two hours, because I love talking about this stuff. But you can text me, and I'll write you back. Or you can email me. I'm actually better at email than text, but, you know, live your life. Do your thing. But, but... 
if you're interested to learn about Blue Ridge Fellows, some of you know it. Man, I would love to. Just tell me I'm a sophomore. Talk to me in two years. We'll, we'll do it. And if you're like, yeah, but my question was the next one on the list, and I really want to know, da, 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 da. Where does the rapture fit into this? How come you say, whatever your thing is, whatever it is, then I'd love to chat about that. So, so you got my contact? You got it? Send me a note, send me an email. We'll talk about it. And we're good? Okay, can yeah. I pray? Will we be done? Yep. Let's do that. Jesus, we lift you up. We exalt you. We love you. It's all about you. Lord, our, the Great Commission is yours. It's a story from you, for you, about you. It's your return that we long for. We long to see you. We miss you. We want to be with you. It's you are the one that will enable us to survive the examination. How dreadful. How dreadful to face it alone. And Lord, if we survive it because you intervene for us, you are the prize at the end of the thing. Lord, it's not being alive forever. Who wants to be alive forever? Lord, it's being alive forever with you. You are the delight and the joy you're the good part of everything. Would you be lifted up? And I pray that these students here might be incentivized to hunger after, to know your word, to discover the things that you've revealed, not only so they can delight in them, but also that they might be adequate communicators of what you've said to others that need to know you too. We love you. Amen. Thanks for tuning in and listening. If you want to find out more information on what you heard, you can check out our website at jmucrew.com.